Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week. This week, we look at the latest on Senegalese politics. Senegal shares three of its land borders with recently coup-prone countries, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau and Mali, and one with another country, Mauritania, which has only got its years without a coup d'etat flip counter up to 16. Plus, we interview Canadian singer Ali Axe. I'm not really hitting the BPMs that actually make it like a club album, but it is danceable and it's indulgent. All that and much more here on The Curator. We start the show announcing the death of jailed Putin critic Alexei Navalny. Here is Andrew Muller with an obit to his life. There are few higher-risk 21st-century occupations than making an enemy of Russian President Vladimir Putin. To cross Putin or the courtiers and henchmen who anticipate his whims is to invite a demise both tragically premature and grotesquely picturesque. It is characteristic of tyrants that merely possessing supreme power is not sufficient. They must also be able to demonstrate that they can exercise that omnipotence absolutely as they please and devil take anyone who seeks to impede them. These are people who are trying to steal my country and I strongly disagree with it. I'm not going to be, uh, you know, a kind of speechless person right now. I'm not going to keep silent. Alexei Anatolievich Navalny was born on June 4th, 1976 in Butin, a small town in the orbit of Moscow, and grew up further south in Obninsk. I'm 41 years old. It means that actually I'm a guy from the Soviet Union. I was a young pioneer. I had my red tie. My father was a military, and I was very proud that my father is guarding Mother Russia from evil Americans with their bombs and missiles. Actually, my biggest memory that I'm, as a child, standing in line maybe sometimes for hours to just buy milk. He studied law at the People's Friendship University of Russia in Moscow and later furthered his education at Yale University in the United States. Navalny became a national figure in Russia in his early 30s. He bought small shareholdings in various dodgy companies, of which Russia had no shortage, gained access to their accounts, and posted his findings on a blog. Did these documents that you got prove corruption? Uh, Absolutely. I work as a whistleblower, and I'm not afraid to uh, announce the names. Few Russians needed to be told that their country was being looted by unaccountable kleptocrats and or their enablers in government, but seeing the figures provided catharsis, if not justice. Navalny, who relayed his discoveries across social media with a dry wit, attracted a colossal online following. When he spoke in public, thousands turned out. In 2011, he founded the Anti-Corruption Foundation, an NGO dedicated to investigating malfeasance by public officials. Again, there wasn't a lack of material. And Mr. Putin puts his relatives, his closest friends, his colleagues from the KGB, at the chiefs of this company. And that's why they're controlling the whole economy. Inevitably, Russian authorities began taking an interest. Navalny was regularly arrested, but chose to regard this thus far low-level harassment as essentially free advertising. In 2013, he ran for mayor of Moscow. 
and very possibly not coincidentally, was sentenced to five years on altogether dubious fraud charges. He was freed pending an appeal and came second in a six-candidate race with 27% of the vote, which, in the peculiar context of Russia, was read as a startling and heartening challenge to Putin's rarely resisted authority. Navalny, by now the closest thing Russia possessed to a leader of the opposition, took the obvious, if nevertheless chaotic, next step and in 2016 declared that he would seek Russia's presidency in 2018. During my campaign, I spent every fifth day in the jail. So now I'm kind of, you know, used to it. Nothing new for me. It's, it's became a routine of my life. The incumbent, or those acting on his behalf, stepped up their response accordingly. Navalny was repeatedly arrested, assaulted with a chemical agent which temporarily cost him the sight in one eye, and finally banned from standing. My uh, doctor in the hospital said, well, Alexei, you should be prepared that you will be blind for one eye. And so I even start to think about kind of, you know, I will be such kind of pirate with a, with a patch. There was another possible chemical attack while he was again in prison in 2019, this time serving 30 days for organizing an anti-government protest. In August 2020, the stakes were raised higher still. Navalny became suddenly extremely ill on a flight from Tomsk to Moscow. After the aircraft made an emergency landing in Omsk, Navalny was rushed to a local hospital from where he was airlifted to Berlin. He spent 26 days in a coma. Doctors confirmed that Navalny had been dosed with a nerve agent of the Novichok strain, a tactic previously deployed against the Kremlin's enemies at home and abroad to demonstrate both the Russian regime's ruthlessness and its total disinterest in what anyone may think of it. A farcical coda ensued when Navalny, sufficiently recovered, elicited an apparent confession from his putative assassin by calling him pretending to be a senior FSB officer seeking to establish what went wrong with the attempted hit. If Navalny's poisoners weren't trying to kill him, they certainly weren't trying not to. They may at least have assumed that Navalny had gotten the message that staying out of Russia might prove conducive to a longer life. Navalny had not. He returned to Moscow in January 2021 and was, as he doubtless anticipated, arrested. Once again, Navalny embraced imprisonment as an advertisement, picking this moment to release video of what he claimed was Putin's billion-dollar Black Sea Palace, a vast and ludicrous lair with its own skating rink and casino, among other expensive accoutrements, difficult to reconcile with a life on Russian government wages. We do a lot of work with the drones because for us it's a best way to show this way of life. When you publish this footage of the yachts, of these palaces, of this real estate, and you, uh, you can show documents, look, this guy have a relatively modest salary, but look at this house. Putin, as usual, denied everything, but tens of millions of Russians watched it. 
Navalny was tried on an assortment of charges that both he and his persecutors knew to be absurd, the absurdity being, as always, at least part of the point of the exercise, an assertion by those in charge that reality is what they declare it to be, that two plus two equals whatever they decide it does. Navalny, like many Russian dissidents before him, was exiled to a penal colony. And they have a lot of nicknames and euphemism for me, like uh, this gentleman, this guy, this convict. But uh, they are thinking about me. And believe me, they are afraid of me, afraid of us. So it's, uh, that is much more important for us than mentioning my name. Alexei Navalny could not have expected to reach an advanced age. He was of that caste of activists who factor in the prospect that whatever progress they might make will benefit not themselves, but those who survive to further the path they cleared. Such is the only kind of opponent that Vladimir Putin's Russia invites, the kind who knows full well what they're up against and goes up against it anyway. And we stay with Andrew Muller now, who explains us how Senegal's president, Macky Sall, is clinging to power beyond his term limits. The UN has condemned a military coup in Mali and called for the immediate release of... We are not presently enjoying a golden era vis-à-vis the governance of sub-Saharan Africa generally, West Africa particularly. This decade alone there have been coups d'etat or attempts at such butchers in Mali, Sudan, the Central African Republic, Niger, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Burkina Faso, Sao Tome and Principe, Gabon and Sierra Leone. In some of those countries more than once, usual apologies to anyone we missed, it's tough to keep up and so forth. Senegal is supposed to be an exception to this misrule. Senegal shares three of its land borders with recently coup-prone countries, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau and Mali, and one with another country, Mauritania, which has only got its years without a coup d'etat flip counter up to 16. Senegal also cradles the Gambia, which has only gone 30 years without a coup, 10 without an attempted coup. Despite the roughness of the neighbourhood, Senegal, though not lacking for internal difficulties, has been a reasonably steady beacon of democracy. Senegalese elections get decent-ish reviews on the freeness and fairness fronts, and power is generally transferred between rival parties in a straightforward fashion. Indeed, as recently as 2017, Senegal acted as a regional enforcer of democratic values, sending troops into the Gambia after President Yahya Jammeh thereof, having been voted out of his office by the Gambia's people, was proving reluctant to leave it. Just a few days ago, coming here for many Gambians was unthinkable. Now residents are within touching distance of what used to be the official residence of Yaya Jame. Now Senegalese troops are in charge here after disarming Gambian soldiers. Jame took the hint and was last heard of sulking in Equatorial Guinea. What is occurring in Senegal now is not a coup d'etat as it is usually understood. There is not, at the risk of tempting fate, a stern gentleman clad in khaki, liberally accessorized with brass, glowering from television screens before a backdrop of flags and announcing the establishment of a new military government with one of those blandly sinister names that cabals of usurping officers are so fond of, with the words salvation, unity, peace, order, patriotic and security, arranged in some or other order between the words national and council. 
What we appear to be witnessing is a variation on the manoeuvre known as the autogolpe, i.e. an attempt to retain or perpetuate power by somebody who already has it. Recent examples might be said to include the events of January 6th, 2021 in Washington, D.C., the extremely similar events of January 8th, 2023 in Brasilia, and the astonishing circus inside the Parliament building in San Salvador in 2021, when President Nayib Bukele of El Salvador barged into the Legislative Assembly flanked by armed goons in an effort to terrorise MPs into doing his bidding. The figure at the centre of Senegal's current crisis is President Macky Sall. Sall has served the constitutional maximum of two terms. In an irony which will become clear shortly, the imposition of such a restriction was a key plank of Sall's platform the first time he ran for the job. A presidential election to choose Saul's successor was supposed to be held on February 25th, and a new president inaugurated in April. Saul should presently be overseeing the removalists as they parcel up the souvenir trinkets bestowed by visiting potentates and honing the shortlist of excruciating puns which might serve as the title of his memoir. When Saul said and done, perhaps, or that's Saul, folks. But he is not. Earlier this month, President Saul announced that the election would be postponed. A new date has been penciled in for December after Senegal's parliament ratified the decision. The ostensible reason for the delay is to resolve a series of rows over who is actually allowed to run for president anyway. There have been several of these over the last year or so. One involves Usman Sonko, an opposition figure, and also a prisoner, currently serving a stretch for, among other offences, corrupting minors, conspiring with terrorists, and endangering the security of the state. All charges, he claims, are politically motivated. Another involves Sonko's personally appointed replacement, Basaru Diomaye Faye, who is also in custody, awaiting trial on charges including incitement to insurrection. Another, Karim Wade, a former minister and son of former President Abdoulaye Wade, was the subject of complaint that he was also a French citizen. He has since renounced this. There are yet others, and a subsidiary fracas attends the propriety of two judges on Senegal's Constitutional Council, who are now under investigation. Nevertheless, large numbers of Senegalese are unconvinced that President Saul's decision to stay on at least another 10 months is a pure-hearted sacrifice in the interests of preserving the integrity of Senegalese democracy. Nothing can stop us, says presidential hopeful Antaingo. We're exercising our basic right, she adds. We have an appointment with the Senegalese people. And there was a period last year in which Saul did appear to be toying with seeking a third term. Saul floated the technicality that as the two-term limit was imposed during his first term, it didn't really count. He backed down after protests in which supporters of Usman Sonko clashed with police, leaving at least 16 people dead. Just as there were deadly protests then, there are deadly protests now. We've had to move locations several times because in many parts of the city centre the air has been thick uh, with the smell of tear gas. A number of fires have broken out uh, and there really is a, a tension here between the supporters and the police who've been deployed in massive numbers. At least three people have been killed across Senegal over the last week or so. 
Speaking in the last few days, Saul insisted that he wanted nothing more sinister than, quote, to leave a country in peace, unquote. Even if that is the case, he risks passing into his nation's history as the man who destroyed Senegal's democracy in order to save it. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. And now, from Senegalese politics to electropop, I had the pleasure to speak with Ellie X. She's about to release her new self-produced album, which is heavily influenced by the sounds of the 80s. Here is Ellie. LEX, what a pleasure. Welcome to Monocle Radio to talk about your fantastic new album. I loved it. Girl with No Face. But before we talk about some of the themes about the music, is that the case? The album was self-produced. I mean, that's incredible. That's kind of the first time you did that, right? Oh, thank you very much, first of all, for the kind words. In terms of the self-production, it was the first time I attempted an entire body of work. I had dabbled before, so I'd done... My song, Bitch, actually, which is my the song that I'm known for at this point, that was a self-produced and self-written song. And then there's many songs on Collection 1, 2, and Super Sunset that I had done additional production on, meaning someone else had started the track and then they'd sent me the files and then I'd added my own thing to it. Also, early songs like Prime on Collection One. I made the demo for that and then passed it off. So like I dabbled, but I'd never attempted a full record because it's I knew it would be a huge challenge and a huge learning curve. So this is the first time. And precisely because of that, would you say that this is perhaps your most personal album as well? I would say it's the most me. Yeah, I think when no one else is in the room to sort of influence your choices and your opinions... Something that is more you comes out for sure. <laughs> I was reading, I think you said also, I always need a bit of camp. I love that because I agree wholeheartedly. And yeah. one of my favorite singles of the album is Off With Her Tits. I think, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> yes. It, I mean, the beat is amazing. Uh, the lyrics. Well, what can you tell us a bit more and perhaps explain what do you mean when you say you always need a bit of camp? I think it's in my personality very much. And to be honest, my best friends always have this quality as well, where there's this real acknowledgement of the darkness and the pain of existing as a human on planet Earth. But there is a humor that is used to express it. And my dad's from the UK, and it's also a very British thing, I think not taking anything that seriously, always taking the piss out of everyone. Like, I really relate to that style of humor. And so, off of their tits is, I think it's very that. Go take the piss and fly with the wind, not stop full of shit. Now off the tits, off the tits, off the tits. I love it. It's definitely one of my favorites. And I have to be honest, that album, 
it's very danceable. I mean, you can see the 80s influence. It feels very hedonistic at the same time. So even compared with your previous album, uh, mm-hmm. w- w- what was your state of mind when you were making this album? Was that your intention? Because I love that. I mean, it's not an album for ballads, let's be honest here. No, there's one sort of ballad on there. Um, but yeah, it's it's an album that's pretty upbeat, more danceable than my last records. I'm not really hitting the BPMs that actually make it like a club album, but it is danceable. And it's indulgent. I keep saying that. Mm. Like, I just allowed myself to indulge in all my favorite sounds and all my favorite genres and references and... And I think the, the 80s definitely was a very hedonistic time and there was all this new equipment that was happening and all this experimentation and I think that was a time where people were, were really indulging and so just by virtue of me referencing the 80s and in the, in the late 70s I think that comes through as well. your whole career you had the golf influences as well but this one I felt as you mentioned the 80s a little bit of human league here and there some Mm. Italo disco as well you know kind of that bass Mm. as well I think those I can definitely see that in the album yeah for sure that's my personal favorite time in music so I just let myself and I also I did something else at this album that I'd never tried fully before which is I kept it pretty much exclusively analog like I didn't use plugins really with a few minor exceptions but mostly I was programming MIDI and sending it to drum machines and synths and that was super fun and I think makes it sound pretty authentically of that time as well. No, it sounds incredible. And Ellie, if you don't mind me saying this on air as well, because you do have some sort of a connection with my home city, São Paulo. Uh, yeah. I, I love that. So I wonder if you can tell us a bit more. Actually, I actually didn't know that before I was chatting with you today. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I brought it up before the interview because I, d- I generally don't talk about my relationship, but I, I am with someone who's from São Paulo and we've been together quite a long time. And he's involved in this album too, actually, is the only co-writer. So yeah, that's that's the the tie to some follow. Oh, that's fantastic. I feel, I feel happy hearing this. I want to talk about some of the other tracks that I liked. For example, I loved uh, John and Jonathan. And I'm a bit curious, yeah. actually, about this track. Who is John and Jonathan? Great I mean, beat as well. Thank you. That's actually the only track that I did a co-production on. That beat was half done when it was sent to me originally from a French producer named Le Comte de And I did a track named Mistress Violet with him for Violet Tchotchke, oh, yes. the drag queen. Which before. is great as yeah, well. So, yeah. And I was like, oh, you have a really cool style. Send me some stuff. So he sent me that beat and then it became John and Jonathan. The concept for John and Jonathan came from two fans that I met at a meet and greet and they introduced themselves that like, I'm John and this is my boyfriend, Jonathan. And I said, wait, so you're John and Jonathan? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, I have to write a song called John and Jonathan. <laughs> and then I did. But, you know, the qualities that I assign to those two characters in the song and the story that I'm telling, it's not specific to those two 
people because I don't really know them. I'm just sort of projecting this idea of two very metropolitan gay men who have this sort of life that I imagine, you know. And then on the chorus, it's sort of, can I trust them? Like this sort of idea of being an artist and how much you can really trust your fans sometimes. So lots of different sort of ideas in that song, but it's all a bit tongue in cheek, as is the whole album. Camp, right? As, as we were talking yes, before. <laughs> but I, I have a feeling that John and Jonathan will be delighted. Uh, you know, I, I, they, yeah, they, they really like it. I, I sent it to them. <laughs> and, and it's interesting. I mean, you described this album as well as vulnerable. And I guess it's because of precisely what we said before, because you said that it's very you. So perhaps you put a lot of yourself in it. Yeah, I, I feel like now that it's finished, it feels, it has this like cuntiness and this strength and confidence to it that as a body of work, I I feel like it, like Cape God is a body of work, my previous album, that that's a vulnerable listen. This one is more of a vulnerable process. The process of creating it was very vulnerable. I just spent so much time doubting it and going insane and being isolated. It took years and there's nobody else in the room to say, oh yeah, that's a good idea or try this or let me help with that. Or so it, the process was kind of like a total breakdown of ego, I would say. It's very vulnerable, just trusting that your ideas are good enough. So yes, in that way, in the process, it was extremely vulnerable. I thought I wasn't going to finish it many times. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And if you're listening to us in Western Europe, you'll be aware that across the continent, medium-wave transmitters are being rapidly decommissioned, and radio stations that broadcast on AM are either departing the radio dial entirely or moving over to the higher-quality FM and digital platforms. But the United States is poised to buck the trend. Lawmakers in Washington are offering AM radio an extended life, pushing back against plans by some of the countries largest car manufacturers to give up on medium wave. Washington correspondent Simon Marks reports. CBS News on the hour is the sound of news in the making. WABC New York. Oh, I love it, yes. And you got the Wolfman Jock Radio Show. Say no like Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. The classic golden sound of AM radio in the United States, it has been around for more than a hundred years. Back in the 1950s, the technology was all the rage, as Westinghouse and other manufacturers competed with each other to capture the market for home and in-car listening. I want you to be sure and see these smart new Westinghouse radios. For people who live some distance away from stations, well, here's the perfect radio, the Long Ranger. 
It comes in a handsome maroon finish. In fact, anywhere you live, you'll be delighted with its long-range power and beautifully clear tone. But as the somewhat unclear tone of that advertisement reminds us, over the last few decades, the quality of audio transmissions improved in leaps and bounds. So many countries are calling time on AM, known in some places as medium wave. Stations, particularly in Europe, are migrating to digital platforms as the big AM switch-off continues. And in many places, new radios no longer even include the AM band. But not here. In the United States, AM is engaged in a rearguard action to save itself from the technological scrap heap. And it might win. Most of my farmers in my local community rely on our AM radio signal. Bruce Winnikins is the owner of WRDN. It broadcasts on 1430 AM in the Wisconsin town of Durand, where it very much puts the local into local radio. Talking with Liz Deitch, she is with the Pierce County Fair. And tell us when the dates are for this year's fair. Yeah, this year's fair is August 8th through August 11th, and we are really getting excited about it. And in addition to the county fair, the town is also getting a new swimming pool. The mayor was on the other day talking all about it. Pool group has started looking at some designs, or at least coming up with some ideas of what they, you know, obviously for something like this, we want people to be creative, something to look nice, something to look professional, but but it's a pool. It's supposed to be, you know, I mean, fun. With its 2,000-watt transmitter, WRDN's signal reaches deep into the rural area where it's based. And owner Brian Winnick says it is the ability of AM to convey signals across a larger area than FM or digital audio transmitters that is key to his station's success. We do local news, local farm news, local farm markets, high school games, church services. We even have a polka show. It's because of that connection to the community. That's why people continue to listen to us. I have not yet figured out how they manage poker on the radio, but the station and 4,000 others like it has a big following. More than 80 million Americans tune in to AM every month. That is now at risk because Tesla and other automakers in the US want to give up on AM, arguing their all-electric cars create electromagnetic interference with medium wave that would prevent listeners from tuning in. I would think that if If Elon Musk has enough money to buy Twitter and send rockets to space, he can afford to include AM radio in his Teslas. Congressman Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey is one of hundreds of lawmakers backing a new proposed law that would require AM receivers to be included in all new vehicles. The decision to remove AM radios from our cars and trucks puts public safety at risk. There are not many issues these days that unite Democrats like Congressman Gottheimer and Republicans like Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. I remember when Hurricane Harvey hit my home home city of Houston and the entire Texas Gulf Coast. People relied on AM radio when other forms of communications go down. AM radio is consistently the most resilient to help people know where to go and how to keep their families alive. And that argument is proving persuasive because the federal government's emergency management agency, FEMA, operates 77 AM facilities all over the country that can be used to spread urgent information whenever necessary. We reach more people over AM radio than any other medium can. Manny Centeno is the program manager of the nation's public warning system. We reach 90% of the U.S. population with those 77 facilities. We're not ready to give up on AM, 
now or in the near future or in the future at all. Some AM stations are market leaders, still making large amounts of money. In New York City, the top-rated station is not on FM, it's not on HD radio. It's WABC, a conservative talk radio station, still firmly on AM. Now, it's Cats and Cosby with John Katsimatidis and Rita Cosby. We were talking about Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Well, he was apologizing today following his recent kept secret hospital stay. And the prevalence of right-wing talk on AM is certainly fueling the desire of Republicans in Congress to protect the wave band, but Democrats recognize many underserved communities, including those for whom English is not a first language, listen to foreign language broadcasts over AM that are specifically targeted for them. You could hear it on the AM radio. AM radio. AM radio. AM Last summer, Ford abandoned its plans to remove AM from its vehicles. Other manufacturers say they still want to phase it out. But there does now seem to be enough support in Washington to grant the wave band a longer lease on life. Meaning that if you're in America, you too will be able to continue listening to the AM radio. And now another lovely cultural story here on The Curator. The South London jazz funk group Simande never expected to hear their music again after breaking up in 1975. In fact, their bass lines lived on through samples on tracks by De La Soul, Grandmaster Flash and the Fugees. A new documentary which is out now, Getting It Back, The Story of Simande, details the rise of the group in 1970s London, as well as the black British experience of the time. Monaco's Robert Bound met guitarist Patrick Patterson and bassist Steve Scipio. Back in the days, people came out to party. Once you put that on, boom, lights out. You don't want nothing else. You ain't needing nothing else. Just put that joint on. I had discovered this new kind of music and I wanted to turn my friends on to it. Patrick and Steve from Simande are with me in the studio. I won't say the heart and soul of Simande, but at least two founding cornerstones of the band. Gentlemen, I know you're doing, you're doing the rounds at the moment in a wonderful way. We feel very lucky to have you. You're in between. I, I gathered as you walked into the, into the studio that you're cutting a new record as well. How's that going in between talking about the rest of your career as, as you've been doing at the moment? Last week we spent recording in the studio at Rack Studio. Yeah. It's been going extremely well. We've cut basic rhythm tracks for five songs. Nice. Um, so we are ahead of schedule because we were expecting to only do three, but we managed to do five. So it's been great. So you kind of, and does it, does it feel like you're clicking back into... Oh, we, 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 we started clicking back long before you went into the studio. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, because we've been, uh, we've been actively touring yeah. since about 2016. Yeah, but it's really this year because of the refresh, or, or should I say, renewed interest in the yeah. band. There's been a lot of um, activity in terms of 
invitation for gigs and, yeah, I'm sure, and right. show on festivals, etc. Festival. So we're going to be extremely busy. How's it felt looking at yourself, kind of looking at yourselves in the mirror and looking at your the kind of long story of your long career through the prism of this film that is obviously the reason that we have you in the studio at the moment. It's kind of light and shade in that film, aren't there? There's some wonderful moments, musical moments. Obviously, there's a lot of camaraderie between you guys in the group. And there's some tough times as well. Looking down the other end of the telescope, what's it been like? Well, it's nice to have the opportunity to reflect mm. on stuff that has gone by. And, you know, what's important is that we consider it a sort of a legacy project. So it's, it's felt great doing that. We've had a, a view about the, if you like, the significance of Simande in terms of British black music mm. and how it's gone with the band where we might have expected it to go one way and it kind of didn't exactly fulfill those expectations. But having had the opportunity to do this project with Tim has been really wonderful inspiring in a way also it's obviously strange but great it's wonderful to have all that footage of you guys as young geezers in brixton and ballam plying your early trade and stuff like that i mean it's great to have great to have all that stuff on record i suppose yeah i mean we lost a lot of footage um uh, first of all (laughs) we have to uh, give tim a lot of credit for the research and archive digging that he he underwent to to retrieve all that stuff i mean it, it was it it was as informative for us as it as it was for you know people outside of the band who was viewing that uh, that documentary. But a lot of footage was also lost, you know, um, of our tour mm. in the U.S. In particular, we did some television shows in the in the U.S., but we weren't able to retrieve those uh, those footage. So the the few that we have on the documentary sort of gold dust yeah exactly. yeah right <laughs> exactly that, that, well, I mean let's, <laughs> let's a good word I'd love to it. come back to that US tour but I'd love to start a bit closer to the beginning of Simande and your first LP and putting that together now that sounds unlike anything that kind of came before it and I wanted to I was thinking I was thinking listening back to that in preparation to knowing, knowing I was going to meet you guys where did the sound where did the influences in the sound for that first self-titled Simande LP come from because a lot of things came after it sounded like it and used bits of it famously samples and things but what about putting that thing together where did the what were the roots of that it might be said that there are three roots first of all we had a band steve and i Mm. before we did simande which was called meta where we were going on a, a, a if you like a musical adventure to explore time signatures hence the the name and that band worked together uh, for about, I don't know, three years or so when the drummer decided to leave. That's uh, when we closed the door mm-hmm. on that. But meet is one aspect of it. Secondly, there would be our influences, musical influences, jazz and soul and um, a little Caribbean and African stuff. There's a little sort before. of Augustus Pablo kind of spiritual stuff in there somehow. Well, uh, he might have been our contemporary. Yeah, but, I think he was your contemporary, yeah. But um, reggae, reggae music was not really our forte. Yeah, uh, our influences came from all sources. I yeah, mean, we, Mita did a lot of jazz. That was our focus. And the third area, if you like, of uh, operation might be just how John, how we worked with John Schroeder, mm-hmm. because John was very important in the creation of the sound. Quite apart from loving the, the music, you know, he had a, a conception about what we should sound like, which was really in tune with the type of music that we wanted to make. Spacious and, you know, impactful kind of thing at the same time. 
So I, I would identify those three. There are many more that I can talk about. <laughs> but I'd identify those three as being significant in terms of the creation of Simandi's music. Yeah. And, and, and I think also important to the creation of the music, obviously, is the fact that we set out for our music to be original. listening to the curator we are back and we're heading out to singapore where the annual light tonight festival brings artworks live music and family activities into public spaces organized by the city state national gallery the free event aims to foster love of art by breaking down social financial and physical barriers for local people monocus lillian fawcett went along to find out more i'm going to take you up to this very special artwork by the late artist Lee Wen. Lee Wen is an artist who is prominent for his performance art. He's very well known for the Yellow Man series. Singapore's Light Tonight Public Arts Festival hosts more than 60 artworks and programs across the city's civic district. These include live music, light shows on famous Singapore monuments and playful public art installations. Fazrul Majid, one of the festival programmers, is showing me around. We start at the National Gallery. It's an interactive artwork. It's called Ping Pong Go Round. I think it was first showcased in uh, Korea. And you actually get to play ping pong on a round table. We found it very interesting that there are two ways that people kind of like play the game when it's in a circular table. Some people still want to play it like a ping pong match, while others will try to kind of like play volleying, you know, you kind of like pass the ball to each other and try to keep the ball in play for as long as they can. The idea behind this uh, ping pong table for Lee Wen is that he's trying to, like if you look at the table right, in a circular manner like this, if you kind of like forget that you're supposed to play ping pong on it, what does the table actually look like? What kind of table? I mean, is it like a dining table or maybe a conference table perhaps? So he's trying to elicit this kind of playful conversations with the uh, festival goers or with the people who interact with the table. You want to have a go? Sure. The artworks are diverse in theme, size and style, but they are all presented in public spaces outside of traditional galleries. Even inside the National Gallery building, the festival presents artworks in hallways and corridors that are usually just functional spaces. Their setting is more casual, more loud and more interactive than a typical gallery. Also, unlike a normal gallery, visitors are free to have their own personalised interaction with the art. Light Tonight guides festival goers through the exhibits, but avoids prescribing precisely how they should be consumed. The main aim of the uh, festival is to cultivate new art audiences within Singapore specifically, and maybe even Southeast Asia. And I guess Singapore doesn't really have a museum-going culture. And we have found that when people come to the festival, right, it's actually the first step or the first meeting that they get with the art institution. And is one of the big ways that you aim to do that through bringing art into public spaces and other spaces that maybe people don't usually expect to see art, like in shopping malls. Do you think that 
attracts people who might not necessarily feel that they could or should go to an art gallery? Public art is something that even before the festival, Singapore has always been experimenting with that. I mean, if you look around the uh, civic district and also maybe even around Raffles Place, we have a lot of public art, you know, a lot of sculptures, even sculptures by Salvador Dali and all that. But in terms of the areas around the gallery itself, because it's so near to the gallery and the other art institutions that we have, so we try to bring art out of the museum if people do not come to the museum to see the art, then let's bring it out to them. So it's in a way we're trying to have a conversation with them and hopefully turning them into new appreciators of art and cultivate that love for our museums or museum-going culture. Right now we're approaching these red inflatable sculptures. If you look at them... Outside, on the green opposite the gallery known as the Padang, is Kumani Nahapan's Wings of Change, a scattering of inflatable red sculptures of different sizes. One is huge, at least three metres tall, others thigh high. They're designed to look like the seeds of the tropical saga tree. If you look across the Padang, right, you see those steps, the city hall steps? There's a lot of historical happenings, uh, events that happen there, like for example the Japanese surrender, Happened there, right. and they were, you know, they the Padang is usually closed to the public, but during light tonight it's opened, perhaps for picnics or ball games. Singaporeans also come here each night throughout the festival to watch the huge light shows projected onto the gallery and other nearby buildings. It's just one of the familiar public spaces that festival goers are encouraged to look at differently and more deliberately. So right now we're at the uh, thoroughfare at Funan, the shopping mall. So what we see here is this long stretch of walkway that people kind of like pass through every day in their daily commute, right? So we have this artwork by the artist Nikkei. So she's a Singaporean-based illustrator and designer. You can see these illustrations of toys going through everyday life. Like on our left, we'll see some toys, figurines, in little cars going across a driveway, you know. Usually Singapore, the spaces that we have are functional. Right, it's a city, right? So what we try to do is we try to get people to slow down, really, and to relook at where they are. Let's say, for example, if you always go to a certain place or go through a certain passageway, you know, or thoroughfare, and the idea is to get from point A to point B, and you don't usually kind of like look around or notice anything. But once we transform a space with art, you get people to slow down and they rethink maybe their existence in this space. You know, it's kind of like a wow factor. Like, hey, I didn't notice this. And surprisingly, some people, even though we put these artworks out there, right? Like, for example, the Tarafa at Funan, they don't notice it sometimes. It's because they're always on their phone until one of their friends kind of nudge them and say, hey, look, this space has changed. There's something here. Most of the artworks at Light Tonight are site-specific, meaning they're planned and often designed with a particular location in mind. In the National Gallery's Padang Atrium, several wire figures by local sculptor Victor Chan hang from the vast glass ceiling, encouraging visitors to look up rather than just pass through. Artist Sarah Chu Jing took inspiration from the history and texts inside Singapore's Rotunda Library and Archive, where her piece Symphony of Order was displayed. Symphony of Order actually explores the intricate interplay of order and unspoken laws within social settings. 
So what you're looking at, um, you're actually seeing a staged dining scene comprising of 12 individuals within a family setting. And the entire immersive experience is actually captured using a 360 degree camera and then projected on the ceiling of the Rotunda Gallery. It wouldn't be as didactic as it would in a museum where you have rooms to go through, right? Here you are moving through the space quite freely and then also kind of meandering through and you get a choice as to how you want to move around that space, how you, which works you want to see first. You know, it's so interesting that we're talking about this because just the other day when I was in the space, and this is something I love doing, being around the audience, listening in on what they would say, right? You know, there were kids that suddenly, you know, just lay down on the floor because it was just much easier for them to view the work when they're lying down. So I think seeing sites like that and then looking at, you know, children kind of gasping when they're looking at the artwork and seeing, you know, identifying with maybe some of the characters even, that to me is quite magical. Children are free to play throughout Light Tonight, encouraged to look and to touch. Both Sarah and Fazrullah say the festival brings in more family groups and young couples than they would usually expect to see at a traditional art exhibition. The thought of entering a art gallery or a museum to look at artworks where typically you don't find many people around, it's usually less crowded. It could come across as a little bit intimidating for people who are not always exposed to art or perhaps they don't frequently visit art installations and exhibitions. But having it framed in such a manner, you know, the way Light Tonight has kind of organized the happenings around even food trucks outside, you know, even live performances, kind of like punctuating the experience of looking at art pieces in the various spaces. I think that really transformed the way the audience then approached the works. By bringing art into public spaces, Light Tonight takes much of the exclusivity out of art. Parents don't need to worry about their children being too loud in a hushed gallery, and busy professionals can enjoy artworks on their commute. And it encourages us to see our cities not only as functional spaces, but also as sites of inspiration and of fun. For Monocle Radio in Singapore, I'm Lillian Fawcett. It's time for some food. Love it. The southern French city of Avignon is internationally known for its annual summer cultural festival. For more than half of the 14th century, it was also home to the Rome Catholic Papacy. Its culinary reputation, however, is often overshadowed by two neighboring cities, Lyon and Marseille. In this episode, Monaco's Michael Booth visits the Provencal city to unearth some of its specialties, which range from unique pastries and archaeological cheeses to a delicious lamb recipe. We're here right in the art of Provence. We're halfway between the mountains and the Mediterranean. So we enjoy quite a diversity in terms of landscape scenery and also natural resources. So we have a lot of traditional recipes and you can add to that the, the location. We ride on the Rhone River and Avignon, it's a wine capital. We are here right in the art of the Côte du Rhone wine region. Where are we now? We're right Julia. here in front of a, a bakery shop called Violette. They go with the old-fashioned way. They sell the bread by weight. Look, this sole big country bread is uh, all together maybe, I don't know, two meters long. 
and it's about oh, five God, six yeah. kilos you just show what you want they cut it for you it's very traditional here it's what we call sacristan in a church the sacristy it's where the religious service is set up right the person we call the sacristan it's actually the priest assistant no food before church huh? no food prior church so no wonder why look there is a church right here it's always the same thing here it's a church and a bakery and a bar and a bar that's the way the city is designed huh? and a bakery why because back in the days on sunday morning after the religious service was over everybody left church and rushed to the bakery to get their bread but the poor sacristan the priest assistant was the last person to leave the church and basically the last person to get to the bakery so when he got to the bakery he got the leftovers and this is what we're going to taste right now we call it sacristan it's the easiest thing a puff pastry toasted almonds powdered sugar egg white and a bit of butter always oh, that sounds fantastic let's go give it a try Look, twisted, it's supposed to refer to the walking stick the sacristan is holding. I thought that was French, but I figured out that it's more of a Provence recipe, and even more Provence, I would say it's Avignon, originally okay. speaking. You're going to give it a try? Let's try one, yeah. I'm going to end up with the uh, icing sugar all over me. Yes, yeah. I do the laundry, no problem. Mmm. <laughs> mm. Butter. Butter. Good butter. Almonds. Mm. Mm. The Fugas. Well, Fugas Provence, yeah. Fugas Provence. Actually, it just looks a bit different. Alors, these ones, look, it's written on it. What we call Fugas, it's actually a flavored bread, kind mm. of. It's like a brioche dough. They can come sweet or savory. If you go savory, that's a real traditional tradition in Provence. They come with uh, uh, olives. olives, green or black, pork rind sometimes, anchovies, onions. Or you also have the fougas sweet, and look, that one is called la fougas d'aigues mortes. Aigues mortes, it's a town nearby here, right, in Camargue. This fougas here, it's flavored with orange blossom water. We are known to make full-bodied wines here. It's just the way it is. We have 300 days of sunshine in the year. The more you have sun, the more you have sugar into the grapes. The more you have sugars into the grapes, the more you have alcohol. And that's probably why we take a nap after lunch. We're not lazy, we're <laughs> drunk, okay? <laughs> you should get that printed on some t-shirts. <laughs> we, we're now getting, I'm taking you into the belly of Avignon. That's the, the mar food market we call Leal. Producers, local producers, you have up to 40 different stalls and from anything you need, from cheese to meat to olives, uh, whatever. So the charcuterie in, in Provence, how, how's that different? I've introduced you to my dear friend Emily, a family-run business here called Filière. They've been around for what? Maison Filière, uh, 1895. Est-ce que vous parlez anglais? Oh, no, a little bit. La spécialité d'Avignon? Well, like a yet. Like a yet. This one is made with pork and herbs. And it's wrapped in what's in English called coal fat. Yeah, that's it. Uh, crep, well, crep, we call it crepin. 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 Voilà, crepin, uh, crepin. It's baked. And this is Avignon. Yes. Oh, yeah. Provençal. Okay. And a beautiful fromagerie here. Oh, yeah. And, and I guess we're talking about goat's milk cheeses if we're here, right? We definitely are. Goat cheese and sheep cheese are... Very local. Look, this is Julia. Let me introduce you to Julia. Bonjour, Julia. Look at the cheese is here. 
here, look, they have more than maybe 300 different types of cheeses. Right. Alors, local Provence, as you said, there is a real focus with the goat milk and sheep. This is what they call chebri. It's goat and uh, sheep together in the cheese. You know, I'm not joking, but it's absolutely fantastic. It's beautiful. Like it? Right, it's really good. Super tangy, sharp, fresh. Oh. Over oh, there. Oh, yeah, look at These that. These are the ones. It looks like something dug up from an archaeological, yeah, archaeological kind of, yeah, dig yeah. or it's something. It's a bit of uh, cheese archaeology. More than a year. Do you want to try? You know, yeah, it would be, it'd be great to try some. Yeah. Oh, my God. It, it's okay. It's okay. really, really strong. It's, How would you describe it's strong, it? bitter, nutty. It's just on the very edge of edible yeah, for me. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. What well, same you? for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need a, we need a drink. We need, yeah, we need a glass of wine or something. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And there's an amazing array of olives in front of these. Oh yeah. Most are from Provence. We have our own varietals. We have five different kinds. And like we do for wines, we can have them uh, blend them together or do like pure single varietals. And uh, the olive oil here, it's uh, nothing in volumes compared to some Italy or Greece or Spain. It's more of a niche production, but as you know, we have some AOC olives, like Nyons, Les Beaux de Provence down here. And uh, the olive oil and the olives, they have their, their own character. Talking about fruits, peaches, apricots, strawberries, cherries, and melons. The melons, Cantaloup, they're very sugary and we're very nearby a town called Cavaillon, well famous in France, Le Melon de Cavaillon. What's the time of year for August or? July and August, July and August. And final stop, the butchers. The butchers. And when I think about Provence and Avignon, I think about lamb, is that right? Oh yeah, definitely lamb. And uh, talking about traditional recipes, there is something I made uh, three days ago, not just in France, but every place will have its own kind of uh, version of a stew, red wine marinated or wine marinated meat. Here we have a recipe called la daube, D-A-U-B-E. Traditionally in Provence, this recipe is made with lamb meat. La daube avignonnaise, there is a recipe really from Avignon with lamb meat and white wine. Very easy wow. recipe. Uh, like a shoulder, uh, lamb meat cut in chunks, cut in chunks. You're going to marinate it in, in white wine with carrots, bay leaves, onions, garlic, cloves, a bit of a celery. I also add um, bouquet garni. I had a fresh orange juice or uh, a zest of it, of an orange. And you make a marinade if you have time. If you don't have time, it's okay. Then you just take off all the meat from the marinade and you're going to brown it into with olive oil. And then you add your marinated wine and vegetables on top, the whole thing. And you're going to stew it for hours. And at How one long? point, three hours? Two or three hours, yeah. And very low temperature. Yeah. When the sauce gets really reduced, you know, a little thicker, you're going to add a few olives. And you serve that with steamed potatoes or rice from Camargue or pastas or whatever. When I do that with the uh, red wine, I give you a little tip. My grandmother used to thicken the sauce with just a little bit of dark chocolate. And that's all we've got time here on The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week at the same time and thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>